the Fugitive Slave Clause, uh, the final of our three uh, slave clauses involved in the Constitution of the United States, kind of continues this this tradition, if you will, uh, of the the guile of those who crafted the, these clauses to gave give them the appearance uh, of acquiescence to slavery while really providing very little, if any, uh, net positive uh, for the trade or for its continuation. Uh, apparently, they were uh, so talented in this misdirection that even modern historians and scholars are confused and baffled, uh, believing that these clauses were, in fact, uh, in, in favor of slavery, uh, when in reality, as they were applied at the time, they were very destructive, actually, to the practice. Uh, so with the slave trade clause and, of course, the three-fifths compromise, we've come to the point now uh, where slavery is being restricted in, in trade uh, in 20 years, and it would be uh, banned outright in 20 years, uh, with multiple acts passed uh, starting in 1793 that restricted it uh, already prior to the, I guess, the, the maturation date of the slave trade clause. And the three-fifths compromise also punished uh, the slave trade coming in and further punished the existence of slavery while rewarding freedom. So the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, really it's its biggest intrigue comes with its formation. So uh, as it was originally proposed, it was proposed by, uh, as one would predict, by uh, southern slaveholding states. Uh, it was proposed specifically by Butler and Pinckney, uh, who were, of course, uh, very, very uh, vocal uh, slavery advocates. They were, they were among the group that had threatened... Uh, to refuse and walk away from any constitution that sought to impose any restrictions on slavery or the slave trade. And, of course, as we've already explored with the slave trade clause and three-fifths compromise, uh, they either were not very interested in pursuing that goal or they were uh, masterfully outmaneuvered politically. And I'm going to go with the, uh, the latter as being the more likely of the two. Uh, especially when one considers that uh, even in the modern day, with all the advantages of historical hindsight, there are still those who who uh, proclaim and declare that the, these various clauses were actually in defense of slavery. So the Fugitive Slave Act, as it was proposed, had remarkably different language than uh, the final clause as it was introduced. Uh, Frederick Douglass elucidates on this as well. He says... Uh, <clears throat> the initial clause, which was proposed by Butler and Pinckney, two pro-slavery delegates, of course, uh, they were, and now I'm quoting here, promptly and indignantly rejected by the convention. The words employed in the first draft, the fugitive slave clause, were such as applied to the condition of slaves and expressly declared that persons held to quote-unquote servitude should be given up, but that the word servitude was struck from the provision for the very reason that it applied to slaves. Now, this is an example of this masterful word crafting involved by the uh, framers and the architects of the Constitution. Uh, the As the clause was, was revised, it not only removed that language, which was applied specifically to slaves, uh, but it removed all language 
that also sought to uh, provide justification for slavery. Uh, there was one such draft that implied that the that labor was justly due to the uh, slave state and the slave owner or whatnot. And of course, that word was stripped out. There was no, there was no justification for this. It was an acknowledged evil, uh, but there was no way that the Constitution was going to be arranged in such a way that it even give a slight pretense to uh, viewing slavery uh, as a just device. Uh, which this is a very important distinction to make, which we'll we'll expand on in a uh, later episode about uh, natural rights theory uh, and how that applies to the function of good government. <clears throat> now, what was really uh, really amazing about the final clause as it was put forward is that it didn't apply to slaves at all. And the reason for that was the language implied that they're, uh, that the, the fugitive in question outside of just being a criminal, uh, was fleeing a contract, a contractual obligation. Slaves were unable to enter into contracts, uh, obviously. Uh, they were uh, treated uh, legally as children in many respects. And so the final clause, as it was adopted into the Constitution, really only applied to indentured servants uh, and to uh, those who... Uh, also had signed some form of a contractual work agreement. Slaves could not do that, and therefore the act could not be applied to slaves. Uh, it was also very early, uh, after the ratification of the Constitution, uh, that the slave states realized that that clause had no enforcement mechanisms in it at all. It just says that those individuals should be delivered up. It does not say who is responsible for doing that. And that is a critical, critical difference. Uh, it does not imp uh, require states, it does not require citizens, and it does not require federal resources in which to return this escaped person to the other where his, uh, or the claim of the party, uh, to whom such service or labor may be due. And this is a, an example of the kind of the eyes glazing over topic of crafting language and how vital that is, especially to documents like the Constitution. And it also speaks that every word was purposeful. Uh, there is a, a kind of an attempt later on, especially in the 20th century and, and, and including the modern day, to try and kind of selectively omit or apply some kind of uh, historical context to things, not to clarify meaning, but to change the meaning of uh, various elements of the Constitution. The Fugitive Slave Clause defeats any type of assertion that uh, there was any non-purposeful language used. It Every word, every syllable, every comma uh, was punctuated and utilized for an express purpose. And in the case of the Fugitive Slave Clause, you have this eloquent uh, short passage uh, that implies that escaped slaves uh, could or should be returned to those slave states, but never specifies how that is to occur. Uh, so very briefly, I'm going to read the Slave Trade Clause. No person held to service or labor in one state, 
under the laws thereof, escaping into another shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. There is no mention of slavery. Uh, in fact, all of the uh, kind of insertion, <clears throat> insertions in there as far as uh, labor being due and that kind of thing. Uh, there's nothing there for them. Uh, they voted to ratify the Constitution. They voted to uh, adopt this particular clause. And at the end of the day, uh, they did not win. Uh, Frederick Douglass actually explains again, uh, ironically, in kind of the same series of debates, I believe it was held in Scotland, if I recall correctly, uh, where he argued in defense of the uh, Constitution. And he explains that this clause was designed to apply only to a specific population. And this population he described, and I quote, as a very large class of persons, namely redemptioners, uh, persons who had come f to America from Holland, Ireland, and other quarters of the globe, uh, like the Coolies to the West Indies, uh, and had, for a consideration duly paid, become bound to serve and labor for the parties to whom their service and labor was due. It applies to indentured apprentices and others who have become bound for a consideration under contract duly made to serve and labor to such persons. This, prov this provision applies and only to such persons. The plain reading of this provision shows that it applies and that it can only properly and legally apply to persons bound to service. It, <clears throat> it applies to indentured apprentices and any other persons from whom service and labor may be due. And then he explains, the legal condition of the slave puts him beyond the operation of this provision. He is not described in it. He is a simple article of property. He does not owe and cannot owe service. He cannot even make a contract. It is impossible for him to do so. He can no more make such a contract than a horse or an ox can make one. So <clears throat> Douglas is being a little ironic here, but, but not really. Uh, the whole idea of chattel slavery and a lot of the uh, laws and philosophies undergirding slavery uh, really depended in, on the notion that slaves were no different than livestock, that they could be owned. And of course, this was an obvious kind of legal hypocrisy very early on because slaves could be uh, tried for murder. Uh, I don't recall a horse or an ox ever being tried for murder if it stomps or kicks its owner. Uh, which was, of course, uh, kind of a, a hypocrisy noted by Dr. Benjamin Franklin, uh, who referred uh, very, very concisely that uh, uh, sheep do not make insurrections uh, when in the context of attempting to define slaves as mere livestock. But the Fugitive Slave Clause kind of hijacks that habit and uses it as insulation to protect escaped slaves from the enforcement of this act. Because like Douglas notes uh, so brilliantly here, since the slave is defined legally as property, he cannot enter a contract, and therefore there cannot be a party on whom his service or labor is due. Uh, that was a necessity. <clears throat> so ultimately, when you take all three of these uh, so-called pro-slavery uh, slave trade clauses. Uh, 
uh, what you really come across is three very damaging assaults on the on slavery as it existed. You have direct impingements on the slave trade through uh, direct taxation and tariffs uh, with a guarantee of 20 years of complete federal prohibition. Uh, You have uh, a political uh, disincentivation for uh, the maintenance and expansion of slavery. Since you only get three-fifths of the political power you would get of a free person, uh, but you still have to pay the full tax as if they were counted as a, as a full and free person. So slavery's now attacked internationally through the slave trade. It is attacked domestically and politically through the three-fifths compromise. It's attacked economically also through uh, the uh, slave trade clause and the three-fifths compromise. And then with the addition of the Fugitive Slave Act attacks it even further domestically by allowing no means if this so-called property uh, escapes, you have no way to legally reacquire it. Uh, that, that these are construed in the modern day as being in support of slavery, is, it's ridiculous. Uh, if you take even the most basic examination uh, of the clauses, even in isolation, but especially together, uh, one must understand that these, when these were enacted, it was, they were structured and organized by their authors to work synergistically to place uh, slavery on a course to its ultimate extinction. And of course, that was really the goal uh, with the Constitution. It was a fulfillment, uh, I guess, providing a, a means to accomplish further uh, the principles espoused in the Declaration. Uh, the omission of the word slave, for example, uh, from the Constitution was a vital element as well. Uh, and the greatest argument, and the most obvious and the most ignored for some reason, uh, that the Constitution as a whole was not conducive to slavery, one need look no further than the Constitution that was written by the uh, democratically dominated southern states when they seceded in 1861. Uh, They authored their own Confederate state constitution, and that constitution did provide specific protections uh, for slave owners. It did provide specific uh, details that declared that whites were superior to blacks, and really it rejected any notion of natural equality. There would have been no need to produce that constitution if the one that governed the Union had, in fact, been conducive to slavery. Uh, Instead, as the historical record clearly demonstrates, uh, the Constitution and Declaration both worked together synergistically to create a, well, not just a legal, but also a philosophical and moral foundation uh, to dismantle slavery piece by piece by piece in courtrooms, on the state level especially, and also in the hearts and minds of individual citizens, uh, which this would manifest itself later on as well in other works of literature. But one can go through multiple laws that cite the Declaration as their uh, legal or moral underpinnings, 
and the same for the Constitution. And just like the Declaration, again, uh, the Constitution was meant to describe and to provide a way forward for the kind of government and the kind of citizen and society that reflected the founding era. Simply signing the Constitution or the Declaration or both did not result in all of these things being applied. This wasn't a, an experiment, not just in America, but for the human race and all of human history. Nothing to this effect had ever been attempted before. And so it was really an un, it was uncharted territory. And even as much as the founders uh, drew uh, not just inspiration, uh, but useful data from prior civilizations uh, trying to incorporate what they did well while highlighting their flaws and weaknesses, what led to despotism, tyranny, uh, and incorporating all of those practical experiences with the Enlightenment philosophy and doctrine of equality and rights and a rejection of things uh, like the divine right to rule and uh, inherent human inequality. Uh, it was a profound and amazing thing, hence the phrase American exceptionalism. And so what we see in our own history, uh, especially uh, starting as early as really as the 1760s, uh, but at least uh, with uh, Jefferson and his notes in the state of Virginia, we start to see kind of this this experiment, uh, this uh, you know, hypothesization coming forward where the founders can see the society and the government that they want, the kind that they, they feel, and rightfully so I would argue, would be the best in government for a free people. But seeing the, the end goal does not present itself automatically as being there. You still have to chart the course. And what we see then in our own history are attempts being made continually to course correct towards that ambition. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that direction would uh, shortly become the subject of tremendous issues, uh, especially with the rise of uh, the Democrat Party and its adoption of, of Calhounism, uh, which itself derived much of its ideas from uh, emerging uh, schools of German philosophy. But as far as examining the Constitution, there is no single area that uh, supports any notion that it was a pro-slavery document. There is no, no notion that supports that it was a document predicated on white supremacy. Uh, people who are making those accusations are either historically illiterate, um, or maybe they have some ulterior motive or purpose uh, that it would benefit them to uh, rile the populations. Uh, propaganda has always been a tool used to uh, subjugate individuals. In fact, it's been an essential tool. Uh, that's, you know, 76% of all whites in the South did not own slaves on the eve of the Civil War, and yet they still marched into battle to die for the plantation master class. But there is no arguments that can be presented that the Constitution was pro-slavery or white supremacist. And so now that we can establish this as a good foundation going forward, uh, we can further delve into the events as they unfolded in American history, understanding now what the founding doctrine was, uh, predicated on natural human equality, and especially on the 
subject of slavery as a transplanted institution, a timeless institution, an ancient one, forced upon the colonies by their mother nation, that was doomed. It would, on a course of its ultimate extinction, and all of the policies of the Declaration, and especially of the Constitution, were designed and meant to fulfill what the founders thought was already the the primary social direction and the collective will of the American people. <laughs>